0: eavesdrop on experts stories of inspiration and insights it's where expert types obsess confess and profess i'm chris hatsis let's eavesdrop on experts changing the world one lecture one experiment one interview at a time brock bastian is a professor in the school of psychological sciences at the university of melbourne He's trained as a social psychologist, and his research broadly focuses on pain, happiness, and morality. His book, The Other Side of Happiness, was published in January 2018. Brock argues that a willingness to experience pain is crucial to our pursuit of genuine happiness and that our efforts to escape unpleasantness or seek out only the positive in fact weaken us in managing life's inevitable difficulties. Negative and painful experiences build meaning, purpose, resilience and ultimately greater fulfillment in our lives. Brock Bastian sat down for a Zoom chat about his work with Dr. Andy Horvath.
1: Brock, you research in the area of pain, happiness, and morality. Now, I get the pain and happiness connection. Well, I think I do. But how does morality connect into it?
2: Yes. Well, that, that uh, I suppose that assumes that perhaps there's a connection between everything I do, Andy. That's not necessarily true. So um, I, I've investigated many different things at different times and and, and, and have brought them together in different ways. Uh, certainly, the connection between pain and happiness is, uh, is close. And... Um, one of the things that I've been interested there is is to understand what really produces well-being and happiness for people and in that way to perhaps overturn some assumptions we've got about that, which is that focusing on happiness and promoting happiness is actually a good way to achieve it. And that actually, in many ways, it may be our painful and negative, um, difficult experiences in life, which play a very important role in producing happiness. Um, My work in ethics and morality has been somewhat distinct to that. However, more recently, I am starting to bring those two worlds together because I do think that... To live a good life, um, to live a meaningful and purposeful life does mean to engage with the world ethically, to uh, live with, uh, I suppose, with and through our our values in connection with those in some ways. And so really to, to live well, we, we also need to do well. And I think that there is a, a nice connection there that we're starting to explore more, more deeply.
1: There seems to be a happiness culture out there and a self-care culture. Um, some of it makes me cringe. Is happiness overrated or perhaps I'm just bitter and twisted? <laughs>
2: I mean, happiness itself isn't overrated. I think happiness is great. Um, I, I like being happy as much as possible. Um, but I, I think that what, what we don't realise is sometimes the psychology behind it. So sometimes in, in, you know, what we know from psychology is that the human mind often works in fairly ironic ways. And, and sometimes when you focus on something too much or, or try not to experience something, um, it actually produces the opposite. Uh, so a good example of this is the white bear experiment or the pink elephant experiment, whichever one you want, where you ask people to not not to think about white bears or not to think about pink elephants. And, and ultimately, the people who are trying not to think about those things tend to think about them more. So, so we have this sort of ironic uh, internal process, and I think we've misunderstood that. So when we ask people to, you know, to, to focus on happiness we promote the value of it, Um, It also obviously suggests to them that they should avoid their negative experiences as much as possible because they simply detract from the kind of life that they're they're wanting to live. But, of course, as I just pointed out with the pink bear and white elephant, trying to avoid negative experiences tends to be counterproductive. And, in fact, the the more that we think we shouldn't have them, the more we try and avoid them. Uh, Because we inevitably do have these experiences in life, it's just a part of living. Uh, we, We don't respond to them well when they do happen. We don't know what to do with them. Um, we think they're detracting from our goal of being happy, and and ultimately we become less happy because of it. So, it's it's really happiness is good, but we we need to understand carefully the psychology behind how we can achieve that, and and via what processes, and also the traps that we can fall into in in trying to achieve it sometimes too, or promote it.
1: What influences happiness? I mean, surely culture must influence it, or is it something that's wired into our brains from evolution? Media and our environments must play a role. So how do we make sense of happiness? Yeah, well,
2: as you said, all of those things do. And, and, of course, happiness is is ultimately, it depends how you understand it. So, I mean, sometimes a more narrow definition is just, you know, how many positive feelings do we have from time to time? Um, I think probably a, a better way of thinking about it is, again, as a, as a broader notion um, where it includes, you know, meaningful pursuits, engagement, those sorts of things, on top of, obviously, those those positive feelings as well. But that, that broader definition, I think, works better for really understanding what happiness is. But, uh, I, again, we know that I think that there is a bit of a mistaken idea that you can continually build your happiness and become, you know, I, I suppose, ever happier um, and, and and continue to, to, in some sense, grow it. And, and I think that probably that's not possible. And, and again, this is where our evolutionary history and, and we do talk about happiness set points as well. We tend to, no matter what we do in life, we do tend to come back to somewhat of a resting baseline uh, around happiness. Um, and that this can be slightly different for different people. And part of that is because we adapt. We adapt to different circumstances. We adapt to different experiences. You know, if you... If you go and uh, and and uh, rent yourself a room in a five-star hotel, it's going to make you incredibly happy for a little while. Ultimately, you'll eventually get used to it, though, and um, probably that that initial you know happiness you experience won't continue. So we we continually adapt and adjust, and that does mean we tend to return to to baseline, and and that is an evolutionary process. It's part of how we've dealt with both positive environments, but more importantly, I think the reason it's there is it's how we've dealt with bad and negative environments as well because we also adapt to those too so look it's a complex picture really that that really draws on and and is influenced by all those things you just mentioned
1: i'm gonna quote you back to you i think you've you said this (laughs) the other side of happiness is embracing a more fearless approach to living unpack that for us
2: as i uh explored more um the, the value of some of um, our, our painful experiences, and, and again, much of my own research is actually just focused on the experience of physical pain, but, but really as an analogue to a range of difficult experiences in life. I, you know, I, I think it's fair to say that it's very hard to, to really experience any happiness in life if we don't also have its opposite. Um, and that, that means sometimes leaning into, I suppose, fearlessly in some way, um, those experiences which can seem difficult, challenging, hard, even painful, it's actually through that process that we achieve, we achieve happiness. And, I, I mean, two, two examples I often use, two things that people might say provide them with a sense of achievement and satisfaction and happiness, meaningful happiness, would be running marathons is one and maybe graduating from, uh, you know, graduating from a, a course, a good, a good one, a good example for the fact we're here at a university. Um, And if you think about both of those, I mean, the very fact that people run marathons, that they train for marathons, that they uh, maybe they get sponsored for running a marathon, perhaps they feel a sense of achievement or other people congratulate them for running a marathon. All of those things are leveraged from the fact that marathons are painful. If they weren't painful, if they were just easy, straightforward, pleasant, like sitting on the couch watching television or having a massage or something like that. Um, massages can be painful, by the way, but I mean, a, you know, a pleasant one. <laughs> um, you know, there'd be nothing in there. There'd be no point to it. It wouldn't be valuable. And so we do seek out a, a lot of the things we actually get the most happiness from life. They do incorporate this other side. Uh, and we just often miss it. We don't see it. Uh, the same thing with graduating from a course. You know, if, if it wasn't for the possibility of failure, I, again, there'd be no sense of achievement. We wouldn't feel we actually had done anything of any great value. We wouldn't get a sense of satisfaction. All these things contribute to our happiness. Um, being challenged, you know, being challenged is incredibly important to our well-being and happiness. But of course, you can't be challenged by pleasure alone. Pleasure's never been a very big challenge. It's always got to be something negative we're pushing against, something difficult, something hard, something painful. So ultimately, I think we just uh, have developed some, you know, what I've referred to as blind spots in this space where we don't see... Uh, the the role of these negative experiences in fundamentally producing the kinds of experiences in life, kinds of events in life that we actually really do draw a lot of happiness and enjoyment from. And so I, I guess that's more or less my position on on why we need to be able to lean into those sorts of experiences to, to really experience happiness in life. Um, and, and of course, the other part of it is as I said, we adapt and, and endless pleasure uh, eventually becomes mun- mundane and and, uh, and and really quite unpleasant in itself. And I think Aldous Huxley's book, The Brave New World, kind of explored that idea of a, a dystopian future where people were able to eradicate all their negative and painful experiences. And it, the, 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 the main character ended up going a little bit crazy because of it. So you know it's not a, it's not a world that we actually want to live in and we stop to think about it we do need those other side type experiences where we we know that they're actually important for our happiness we just often forget it and we don't think about it clearly sometimes i think
1: chronic pain chronic physical pain often affects individuals mm. emotionally as well it really does mm. lower one's ability to to thrive and function um and it's very up and down how does your work Give us insight into pain, and I know from the scientific community, pain is still quite an elusive area.
2: No, I think it is quite elusive area. I mean, we are still the the reason being is a very big psychological. In fact, if not entirely a psychological um, component to to the way we experience pain, and that means that it's it's complex, like anything that that, that occurs psychologically, and it can be influenced by a range of factors. But uh, I think I think when we when we're talking about chronic pain, we are talking about A somewhat different experience and and certainly you know my my position on this is not to say that people with chronic pain should be glad and happy they have it of of course they're not and they shouldn't be it's it's a terrible thing to have to experience endlessly and that's that's i think the point it's there's no variation for people who do have chronic pain it's um and, and it is the variation it's the the ability to to lean into something and then and then have a sense of relief from doing so that gives that sense of happiness and there's no relief when you have chronic pain um, and that, that's where it's quite different. Having said that, I, I do think, and certainly, you know, in messages and other sort of feedback I've received from people who do suffer from, from chronic pain, you know, they do, when, when, we, when I do um, walk through what are some of the potential benefits, some of the upsides we might get from painful experiences, um, they do re- they do, that, that does resonate for them. And, and I suppose if you're going to manage something that's hard, that's difficult, that's even enduring, Simply seeing it as bad, as undesirable, as, as detracting from your life and as having no value at all is not a great way to manage it. So if you can find a, a little a little sort of wedge in there where you say, okay, this is, this is terrible, but I can see some other things that are perhaps coming around to me, I wish I didn't have this, of course. But, you know, given that I have to endure it, um, perhaps taking a more nuanced um, and differentiated perspective on, on what I'm having to push through is actually a better way to
1: manage it. Brock, explain some of the experiments you actually do. How do you conduct studies in this area?
2: Yeah, I mean, we, we use different methods, you know, for different research questions. So when it comes to understanding the value of pain, and that's, I, I have been um, using, uh, and, and, yeah, using experimental methods in the lab, so actually getting people to experience pain. In the lab, so that might be getting people to put their hands into buckets of iced water for as long as they can, doing leg squats, um, even even eating hot chilies, um, and and all of these are ways of inducing a painful experience. Obviously, one that people don't feel that they can't handle, um, but but one which still elicits the, the kind of psychological experience we're interested in. And, and as I said before, we've used we've used these sort of acute physically painful experiences, but we're also interested more broadly. Um, in in a range of negative and difficult experiences that people people have in life. So that's been our approach there. And then we can really observe in a very behavioural and experimental way how people respond to those sorts of experiences. In in other work around you know understanding happiness norms and how they impact on people and uh, how they how they play out for people in their own well being and happiness uh, we often use surveys we've used some studies some experiments as well in the surveys we've we've run a recently a large multinational survey covering about 40 different countries in that sense we're able to look at cross-cultural differences in this as as well as individual differences in it um we've we've also put people into rooms where we've um plastered those rooms with the kinds of um upbeat happiness promoting messages you might get in some some office spaces sometimes, and and watched people respond poorly to to experiences of of failure and setback in those rooms compared to more neutral rooms, showing again that sometimes pushing people to think that happiness is important means that they don't respond so well to instances of failure, which I think is a very important um, an important message when it comes to understanding how we might promote happiness in in workplaces and even in schools. So a really a range of methods, and and uh, sometimes we also. We collect data on mobile phones from people across the, um, the day. We might ping them a, a short survey up to 10 times a day, or maybe we'll do it just uh, a short daily diary each day so we can actually pick up these sorts of experiences that people have on, on a day-to-day and moment-by-moment basis as well. So we use a range of methods, and it really depends on the research question and what the best way to answer that is.
1: And what surprised you most about some of this research?
2: Certainly initially, uh, I, I, I did set out to, I suppose, find this idea that maybe we were overvaluing happiness and that doing so was causing some problems. Um, I, I guess I was surprised to see that it was quite so um, consistent and, and also uh, across countries we find this as well. So certainly it seems that, the, the, you know, and, and the way that we look at that is really more focusing on how comfortable people are with their negative experiences. Um also measuring how important they think uh, it is to remain happy, but we certainly find very consistently. I think one of the, the standout findings that uh, really really stood out for me was when we um, we used a, a daily diary technique to look at. Uh, the depressive symptoms that people experienced on a day-to-day basis, but also the extent to which they felt a certain amount of social and societal pressure not to have these experiences, to remain happy and not to, not to delve into this negative side of life. And, and what we found was when we used a network analysis showing, I suppose that allows us to really see the centrality of a particular measure or construct, we actually found that this social pressure uh, was very predictive of depression on the next day. Um, and it wasn't that feeling depressed led me to experience more of this social pressure. It was the other way around. So we had some nice evidence there for causality, but also the network analysis showed that this, this was quite a central feature of people's depressive symptoms in our survey. So so what I, what I sort of the way I like to think about that is that in a sense that, that social and cultural valuing of happiness and the way that it impacts on depression was actually central, not peripheral to people's network of depressive symptoms. And um, in a sense, it kind of brought for me as a social psychologist, it meant I was I was quite, I suppose, interested to see how the social and cultural element to our experience was actually quite central rather than peripheral. So I'd say that was one of in that in that particular domain, of course, in the work around pain, I was always interested just to, I suppose, see the various ways that this this had positive outcomes. And, and I think initially I, I was quite surprised to see that nobody had really spent a lot of time examining what are the upside of, of negative and painful experiences directly. In fact, most of the stuff that I could find was was in religious writings. So I thought it was time to do a bit of scientific research on it.
1: Brock, what would you like to activate in society? I'm going to give you unlimited funding and staff.
2: Fantastic. Right. Well, I suppose in this particular Area. I mean, look, there there are there are two things that I think would be really really valuable and and important. Certainly, one would be to start to build a greater focus on some of the the broader contextual and, in my mind, underlying causes of the mental health crisis we're currently facing. Into, you know, one of one of the things that I'm quite interested in is is actually in in an applied way is organizational culture. And the reason for that is that I think that we know that the job stress is a very important predictor, in fact, quite a significant predictor of the levels of depression, anxiety that we see in any given year. Um, And and so quite often we've we've developed this rather person-centered focus or a medicalized focus on on these issues. And I think we really do need to start to develop a broader contextual, social, cultural uh, way of thinking about why is it that so many people are experiencing um, mental health issues in any given year? What's behind the rise? And and so I would like to be able to uh, to really start to think about ways that we could look at those broader issues and 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 start to address those and think about what we might do that might actually benefit people in that broader sense. But also, I think uh, and 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 related to that, I think uh, you know as we move forward, certainly our sensitivity to ethics, ethical decision making, um, how we treat each other, even how we treat other entities like the environment, animals, things like this. This is coming to the fore. and, And it's a really important area to understand well, because I think that we are starting to really see a lot of A lot of positive behaviour change and people are are now becoming more sensitive to a range of social issues on on the basis of an ethical framework. And and I think this is a really good thing, but also, also we're seeing some really deep ideological divides beginning to emerge, particularly in America but it's starting to happen elsewhere as well. And so understanding how to both use ethics to get people engaged in important social causes, but then also how to understand how to step away from the sorts of divides and problems that actually connecting to uh, to ideological positions can actually create, I think is going to be really important moving forward. And we're, we're certainly, again, seeing that that ethical considerations are, are, are coming to the fore, particularly for the younger generations. You know, we know from... From surveys that um, younger generations engage with organisations and business based on their ethical uh, reputations as much as anything else these days. But at the same time, this focus can go wrong, and it can lead to to greater greater division and conflict. And so, understanding the psychology behind that and how to how to manage it well, I think, is going to be very important moving forward. And and of course, that that all of that feeds into that well being piece. And also, uh, the more that People understand the importance of of connecting with those ethical frameworks and um, and and understanding the the role that living from your values uh, has in producing well being. Um, I think we're going to also be able to look at a broader piece there on understanding what's missing, perhaps, and and what might be contributing to the the mental health crisis we're seeing too.
1: That's a really salient point. Next time we pass by a bookshop, say, and we see a book with happiness in the title, what would you like us to think about?
2: Well, I, I mean, I, again, I, I think that that whole self-help um, you know, area has been very important. Uh, of course, my book has happiness in the title as well. So I wouldn't encourage you to walk right past them, uh, <laughs> selfishly. But I I think it's been I, mean, I think it's great that we're we, people are interested in understanding these issues um, and and trying to understand how to I suppose live lives that are more 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 full and and where they're able to actually manage their own well being in ways too I guess what I would simply caution is that. If you're picking up a book on happiness because you want to set happiness up as a goal for your life and that you think that that's the reason, that's going to be the most important thing for you, um, then that's probably going to backfire. And if the book is telling you uh, that simply, you know, thinking more positively, encouraging more positive feelings and focusing on that as, as a goal in and of itself, um, and that that somehow is going to create value for you uh, and will maintain your levels of, of happiness and well-being, then I think it's also probably uh, not true. I think we when we are looking at um, books on happiness, or, um, you know, investigating our own well being at all, I think we need to look past happiness as a goal. I mean, really, really, if the goal in life is simply to feel good, um, that to me seems a little bit thin on the ground, and maybe really, and in fact, I I think actually, um, the better way to to achieve happiness, is to see it as a byproduct of doing something something else that matters, that's meaningful, that's perhaps engaging in an ethical way in, in the world that we live in, and, and making a difference, volunteering our time, contributing, uh, connecting with other people. I, I think these are really purposeful and meaningful things. And, you know, they might not always make us happy in the moment. Sometimes it's hard, sometimes it's costly, sometimes it asks a lot of us. But I think it ultimately will make us happy, and it will be a bright byproduct of focusing on those things. So, I guess I would just simply say, don't focus on happiness as a goal in and of itself; it won't work. Focus on other things that you think are actually going to make a difference and that are going to contribute uh, to the world and to your own life in meaningful ways. And, and then you'll probably find along the way that you'll notice one day that you wake up and think, you know, actually, what, I'm, I'm actually a little bit happier than I was.
1: Professor Brock Bastian, thank you, and may your happiness be wholesome and full of pleasant relief. <laughs>
0: Thank you.
2: I appreciate that.
0: (laughs) Thank you to Brock Bastian, Professor in the School of Psychological Sciences, University of Melbourne. And thanks to Dr. Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts. Stories of inspiration and insights was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on April 22, 2021. You'll find a full transcript on the Pursuit website. Production, audio engineering and editing by me, Chris Hatzis. Co-production: Sylvie Van Wall and Dr. Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts is licensed under Creative Commons copyright 2021, the University of Melbourne. If you enjoyed this episode, review us on Apple Podcasts and check out the rest of the Eavesdrop episodes in our archive. I'm Chris Hatzis. Join us again next time for another Eavesdrop on Experts.